our Bible reading today is from the book of Exodus, starting at chapter 32, verse 1, which is found on page 90. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed them, what, he, what they had handed him, and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God, the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, 
We don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Jump with me, please, to... Uh, On the same page, chapter 33, starting at verse 12. Verse 12, chapter 33. Moses and the glory of the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are blessed with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were in the first that were on the first tablets which you broke be ready in the morning and then come up 
on Mount Sinai, present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is God's word. Thanks very much, Alex, for uh, reading. Hi, everyone. Let me have my welcome to Rosie's. Great to see you here. My name is Mark. I'm one of the ministers. And a particular warm welcome if this is your first time with us at Inspa. It's great to have you here. Before we look at these chapters together, let me pray for us. Ask for God to speak to each of us. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you very much that you are a speaking God, that as your scriptures are read and spoken from, we hear your voice speaking to us. And I pray that as we come to these three chapters of Exodus, you, your spirit would show us the essence of who you really are. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at chapters 32, 33, and 34 of Exodus. These are weighty chapters of the Bible. There's meat, there is heaviness here. These three chapters answer the question, how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? I'm conscious that this might not be the burning question on your heart and mind as you come to church this afternoon. How do I keep warm in this cold weather? It might be more of that. Not this big question, how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And yet this is a question that God wants each of us, wherever we're coming from today on the spiritual spectrum, to wrestle with, to grapple with, if we're to truly understand the wonder and beauty of the Christian message and what Jesus Christ has done for us. Most of us tend to have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of God. And there's not much gap. Relationship with God, no big deal. Perhaps I can bridge that gap. And if God's got to do something, well, only got to forgive a bit of sin, right? If, however, we have a more biblical view of God, I can't get high enough, but in all his moral purity and perfection and hatred of sin, and as difficult as it may here, as you come to church this afternoon, a more biblical view of ourselves down here, far from God's perfection because of our sin, well, suddenly we see that the potential of a relationship with God is much harder or much more complicated than we might have thought. No big deal. Big deal. I, can't bridge the, I can bridge the gap. There's no way I can bridge the gap. What's a little bit of sin to God? Oh, my goodness. How does God forgive that? How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? Really important question. 
for us to consider, if you've never considered it before, if we're going to get Christianity right. Three things for us to see from these three chapters. The problem, a sinful people. The tension in the heart of God, a hint of a resolution through Moses. And we'll take those one by one. The problem, attention, the resolution. First, the problem, a sinful people. Chapter 32, verses 1 to 10. Let me read again the first few verses. When the people, this is page 90. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Are any alarm bells ringing? Are you shocked at all by what you hear? The speed in which the people sin, the speed in which they turn from the Lord. When the people saw that the Moses was so long in coming down, well, it wasn't that long. I mean, I suppose he's up the mountain for 40 days. Why not? They're so worried about Moses. Send out a search party. Seek the Lord in prayer. At least you should carry on keeping God's commands in the meantime. Not desire an idol. One of the very things that God expressly told them not to do. The speed of it. The speed of turning from the Lord. 40 days. It could have been a lot quicker than that. Think of the time it took to collect all that gold, to melt it down, to fashion it into a golden calf. Was it one week? Was it two weeks? Three weeks at most? So quickly. What is it about the natural human heart that it is so quick to turn from what the Lord commands, to turn from trusting in him, the speed of it? Can you imagine someone recently married, sleeping with someone else on their wedding night or their honeymoon? It'd be heinous, it would be shocking, it would be shameful. And yet how quick are God's people to turn from him who have rescued him incredibly to the Red Sea, the Exodus, the plagues, the Passover, giving them the Ten Commandments. I mean, God couldn't have been any clearer, could he, with what he wanted? Commandment number one, you must have no other gods before me. Number two, you should not make any idols. What are they doing? Making idols. Crazy. So quickly. What is it about human nature? Verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down, Moses, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. And that's what has happened to human nature. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Sin, rebellion, it is always turning from what the Lord has already commanded. We live in a, a culture today where right and wrong is much more fluid. It's defined much more by what I feel and what I want to do, not what people say. But if at the end of the day, behind this universe is a good God who has put a natural order into creation, who has spoken his truth, revealed right and wrong to us, then every time we turn away from what he says, 
No matter how we feel or what we think is right, it is always wrong. It is sin. It is as shocking and as heinous as what God's people are doing here. If you were with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard the people themselves actually promise to obey God. Back in chapter 24, Moses hears the book of the covenant and the people say, yes, we will obey. And at most 40 days later, quick to disobey. Knowing full well what the Lord wants and yet just carrying on doing what they want. A problem as sinful people. Is it a problem, you say? Is it that serious, actually, at the end of the day? Well, look at verses 9 and 10. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Sin is always a very big deal to God. I know we don't like the idea today of God being angry, an angry God. How do you feel whenever someone wrongs you? Really wrongs you? I imagine you don't feel happy about it. I imagine you feel quite angry about it. You have a desire for something to be done, for there to be a consequence of it. That is a good feeling. That is right, is it not? How much more so when it comes to God? Of course, in human anger, we get it out of proportion. God's anger is always perfectly proportioned. A holy God, morally pure and perfect in every way, who hates evil, who will deal with all sin, that is a good thing. Or there is a problem for a sinful people. Please also, by the way, don't think this is just the God of the Old Testament here. Oh, he's all angry and vengeful, and the God of the New Testament is all gracious and loving. Just read Acts chapter 5. Ananias, struck down dead and dies just the moment he lies. This is the God of the whole Bible. A holy love. A white-hot purity that burns against all sin or evil. And so can I ask, do you see the gap between this holy God and us as a sinful people? Do you see the gap like this or do you see the gap like that? If you see the gap like this, you may think you can be good enough for God. That you can bridge that gap. What do you need Jesus Christ for? If you see the gap like this, as it truly is, I need help. How can God possibly dwell with me? Now, at this point, you might say, well, look, these were the Israelites back then. That's not me. They were so foolish to turn so quickly from the Lord. I wouldn't fashion a golden calf. I wouldn't turn so quickly from the Lord's commands. Really? 
For those of you with kids like myself, have you ever promised to God, promised your spouse that you will never lose it with your kids like that? And yet finding yourself doing just that, perhaps the next day? Oh, it's not just me. Have you found yourself promising to God, promising to yourself, I will never do that again? So stupid, idiot. I will not, I will not be looking at those websites again. I promise God I will not do it. And yet, even a few hours later, there you are at it again. So quick to turn from what the Lord commands. So quick to turn, even though you've made a promise to him. Think of some of the commands that we have in Scripture. Do not get drunk. Do not have sex outside of marriage. Do not worry about anything. Give generously. Forgive even your enemies. We know what the Lord wants us to do. How often, how quickly do we turn to do just what we want to do instead. No, we are a sinful people too. I have no pleasure in saying that. I'm under this microscope as well. But we need to see this reality. And as difficult and as painful it might be to hear, we need to see that we deserve God's anger too. The gap is that big. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? It seems he can't. But now that brings us, secondly, to a tension within the heart of God. Because if you've been following our series through the book of Exodus, you will know that God has already promised to dwell with his people. And if God makes a promise, he keeps it. Last week, chapter 25, God says, Let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So which one is it going to be? What is God going to do? Is he going to dwell with his people like he's promised? Or is he going to destroy his people? Because his holiness can't tolerate any evil. Which one is going to win out? His faithfulness or his holiness? And if his faithfulness wins out, what about his holiness? And if his holiness wins out, what about his faithfulness? Do you see the tension? And this is a tension, a tension that the Lord wants us to see and wants us to feel and wants us to grapple with as we see this interaction between the Lord and Moses over these three chapters. It's a shame we couldn't have it all read out, but let me just draw some of it out for you. We've already seen the Lord say his anger is burning against them and he's going to destroy them. So we think, all right, his holiness is going to win out. But just glance down with me at verse 13 of chapter 32, where Moses pleads on behalf of the people and pleads on God's name and his promises. He says, verse 13, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. I promise them, you made a promise, Lord, so keep to your promise. And verse 14, the Lord relented. And did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. God's faithfulness is going to win out. 
That's what we're now thinking. But then Moses sees what comes down the mountain, sees what his people has done, trashes the two tablets. They're destroyed because the covenant with God is destroyed. You get this terrible judgment from the Levites. Moses goes to God and says, oh, forgive this people, Lord. And verse 33, God says, no. The Lord replied to Moses, verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, you can lead the people to the place I spoke of. I'm not going with you. My angel can go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And God's holiness seems to now be winning out. Do you see how it's going? God's holiness, God's faithfulness, God's holiness. Moses is at it again in verse 13 of chapter 33. Remember that this is your nation, your people. This nation is your people. Verse 15, your presence must go with us. Verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. And God's faithfulness is coming out on top. God's holiness, God's faithfulness, God's holiness, God's faithfulness. And then finally, the Lord shows his glory to Moses, his glory, the very essence of who God is. And in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 34, we read, And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And we think this is it. God's faithfulness wins out. His love, his forgiveness. Until we read the end of verse 7. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And that tension between God's faithfulness and holiness is still there right in the heart of God because of the sin of the people. Do you see that tension? Are you grappling with that? Are you feeling that as God feels it? It is really important that we are not quick to jump to the resolution. Or if we're pretty clued up on what the resolution is in Jesus Christ, that we don't forget that tension that is there. The German poet Heinrich Henner once said, of course God will forgive me, that's his job. It was on his deathbed, it was a bit of a joke. You hear people saying it today, of course God will forgive me, it's easy for him to, he's God, he's going to sweep sin under the carpet. No, he can't. He's holy. He hates sin. He can't tolerate evil. His anger burns against it. He must punish it. It is not easy to forgive. We know that on a human level, let alone on a divine level. I don't know if any of you came across Rachel Den Hollander's statement recently. She was one of the U.S. gymnasts horrifically sexually abused by Larry Nassar, the USA medical team doctor. You can read her full statement online. Let me just read out some of it for you here and the tension going on in her heart. Here is someone who has suffered terrible evil at the hands of a sexual predator, obviously fighting for justice for herself, for every other young woman who has fallen prey to this abuse. She said in this statement before the judge, so I ask, how much is a little girl worth? 
how much priority should be placed on communicating that the fullest weight of the law will be used to protect another innocent child from the soul-shattering devastation that sexual assault brings. I submit to you that these children are worth everything, worth every protection the law can offer, worth the maximum sentence. Now, you can hear the words there, the fullest weight of the law, the maximum sentence, rightly fighting for justice, a right anger burning against what had happened that was so wrong. And yet, later on in her statement, she holds out forgiveness to this man. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Now, no one here, even for a second, would suggest that that is easy for Rachel to offer, this offer of forgiveness, this tension between this desire of justice, this offer of forgiveness. How much more so with God, his faithfulness, his holiness. You and I must hold the two in tension. If you focus too much on God's faithfulness, his love and forgiveness, and forget about his holiness... We will stop caring much about sin. We will be complacent about sin, complacent about the fight for sin. We will cheapen grace. We will be less holy and grow as a Christian in your life. If on the flip side you focus too much on the holiness of God and forget his faithfulness and love and forgiveness, you will be constantly walking in terrible fear and guilt of your sin you will lack any assurance of God's love because of where you fall short. You will primarily think of God as a judge just ready to get you and have little joy in your Christian life. We need to hold both together. His faithfulness and his holiness. Live in that tension. No matter how difficult that is, particularly for those of us who like things in black and white, because this is who God is, the real essence of who he is, his glory, gracious, compassionate, loving, faithful, forgiving, and yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. But that still leaves us with the question of how this is all resolved exactly. Especially when God renews the covenant with his people in verses 8 to 35. And we have two more stone tablets and we have the Ten Commandments again. And Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days and comes down all radiant and speaking to the people. And as we'll see next week at the end of the book of Exodus, the Lord is dwelling with his people. And his glory fills the tabernacle. And we still have this question, well, how is that possible? How can God dwell with a sinful people? 
Well, it seems that Moses has an idea of where this resolution comes from. If you just glance back with me to chapter 32 and verse 30, starts just on the bottom of page 91. Moses is pleading to the Lord on behalf of the people. He says, well, we read from verse 30, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Now, hasn't Moses come a long way from when God first called him back in chapter 4? If you were here for that, chapter 4, Moses timid, Moses scared. Moses, please send someone else. I'm not very articulate of speech. I don't want to go. And look at him here, pleading on behalf of his people, going to the Lord, wanting to make atonement for the sin of the people. Whether that means him pleading on their behalf or literally him offering himself as a substitute for the people to be blotted out in their place. It's not clear exactly what he means. What is clear is he's got the idea of atonement, sin being paid for, God and his people becoming at one, atoned. He's just been given the instructions of the tabernacle up the mountain, the atonement cover, the atonement money. Here's the solution. Maybe I can provide for it. But of course, Moses can't provide atonement for the people because he is sinful himself. He cannot see God and live. But even here in the second book of the Bible, here is a picture of one who can make atonement for the people. Listen to how Jesus Christ is described by the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians. God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is this verse saying? It is saying this, that on the cross, as Jesus Christ is dying, all of God's anger that is burning against all the sin of the people is poured out instead on his son, Jesus Christ. One who had no sin and so could bear the sin of all people, he was made sin for us. So that in him, by faith in him, now risen from the dead, we might have his righteousness and so we can be welcomed and accepted and loved, forgiven by God for all eternity. That is the resolution to this tension. God's justice, his holiness is satisfied because on the cross sin is paid for in his son, in himself. But his faithfulness is still intact. Because now with sin dealt with, he can dwell with his people by his spirit and one day you and I can dwell with him face to face as Moses was here talking to God as one speaks to a friend only because of what Jesus Christ has done. That is the resolution. But please, please do not for a moment think that this is easy for God. It cost him his son. Jesus died. He died for you 
and me. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Father, if it is possible, take this cup of your anger from me. Beads of sweat like drops of blood. This wasn't easy. This was incredibly costly. It meant the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus Christ went willingly to his death for you, for me, for our sin, to bear God's anger so we could have God dwelling with us forever. Please don't ever think this is easy. And so by all means, praise God for the salvation he offers in Jesus Christ. Praise God for all that Jesus has done. But as the New Testament tells us, let's continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because the price of our salvation is that high. By all means, revel in the forgiveness of sin that Jesus Christ has won for you. It is so precious. Bathe in it. Come back to the cross every day for that forgiveness. But don't be complacent about your sin. Keep fighting your sin. Because God hates it and it grieves the Holy Spirit. And his anger burns against it, even if it is born ultimately in Jesus Christ. By all means, be assured of God's love. How deep his love is, the depths that he has gone to for us. But do not take his love for granted and abuse that love by continuing to do what you want to do, even though you know what God wants. Keep the tension. Even if you know the resolution, God's holiness, God's faithfulness. We might not come to church this afternoon with this question on our hearts and minds. How does a holy God dwell with a sinful people? But God wants us to leave with this tension very clearly in our hearts and minds. Not like this, the gap between us and God. The gap naturally like this with a right view of ourselves and a right view of God, a view that will keep us humble before God and humble before others. So appreciative of the forgiveness of sin that we have in Jesus Christ, but still fighting against our sin. A wonderful joy in our salvation, and yet no complacency. A desire for holiness, along with our forgiveness. Because the God of the Bible is a gracious God, a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving rebellion, sin, yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's the essence of who God is. Let's know him rightly, worship him rightly. Let me pray for us. Let's pray now. Father God, thank you so much indeed for the way you reveal yourself to us in this section of Exodus showing Moses your glory, the very essence of who you are. We praise you for your compassion, your grace, your slowness to anger, your abounding in love and faithfulness, your forgiveness of wickedness and rebellion and sin. We are eternally thankful 
for that aspect of your character. And yet, Father, help us never to forget your holiness and your hatred of sin and the way your anger burns against it. And therefore, would we hold these two aspects of your character, intention in our Christian lives, absolutely assured of your love, but never abusing it, reveling in your forgiveness of sin, but still fighting sin, joyful but not complacent, knowing you rightly, knowing ourselves rightly, and so worshiping and living life in your world the way you want it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.